You're listening to episode 396 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hey, Max, how are we? Doing well, David. How about you? I'm doing well. I'm getting a little anxious. It's only 28 days till my exhibit opens at the American Helicopter Museum. So start, panic is starting to set, settle in. Again, that's why we're a day late and a dollar short here on the UAV Digest <laughs> is because I was running late last night um, at the museum. But we got lots of good stories this week. Uh, we've got drones have come a long way, baby. The impact of AI on UAV capability. A new supersonic, hypersonic drone. An Apple drone. No, not that Apple. Drone as a service in Germany, creating a digital twin of a national treasure and a lethal killer drone. So I think we should get started. What do you think, Max? David, let's get started. Well, our first story comes from flyingmag.com, the real-life evolution of the drone. Five years ago, some people called drones toys, but drones have come a long way since then. Huh, Max? Gosh, they sure have. It's it's just amazing. And they point out in the article lots of the applications for UAVs that, that we're all familiar with, but things like using them as a marketing tool for aerial imagery. And, of course, it's been a, a boon for real estate. There are other examples, wildfire restoration things like seeding operations and wildlife studies, uh, and also uh, going into environmentally sensitive areas where manned aircraft would be intrusive in capturing imagery there with drones. What was really kind of nice is reading this article, Max, is it sort of made me think of all the years we've been doing this show now and how much of this we've covered over time. But, you know, they did talk about common drone mistakes on, on this. Um, one of them is not listening to um, UAV Digest. That's a common drone mistake. <laughs> um, and this was kind of, kind of an interesting point. Simply having a drone doesn't guarantee customers. Uh, you have to have a business model. If years and years of listening to Shark Tank now because of Amber, uh, I've learned that you have to have a business model. If you don't, you're not going to get a business plan for uh, your drone. Taking video from too high an, alt- an altitude, um, yeah, things get tiny when you're up that high. They're probably not the very focal length that you want. Yeah, it kind of goes to video skills, and it kind of ties in, I think, with the first one you mentioned, David, about having a drone doesn't mean you've got a business. Because I think in the early days, a lot of people kind of assumed that. We would see lots of people with their quadcopter figuring, yeah, I can go out there and for 25 bucks or I can make 50 bucks maybe, I can talk to some real estate agents and you know, film their uh, their properties for sale and so forth. Uh, so unrealistic expectation. But also some people just didn't have or hadn't had the time to learn good videographic skills. And uh, that's one thing this article points out that Sometimes people are just, uh, you know, not exhibiting the best uh, professional skills. Yeah, well, in order to be, just because you have a good camera doesn't make you a photographer. Just because you have a drone doesn't make you a drone pilot. Um, and there were some surprises along the way. Um, firmware updates that make it difficult to unlock or no-fly permissions, you know, and regulation is, I mean, we've talked about that more and more every year, and... It's gotten kind of redundant. Yeah, stability of 
firmware updates. Of course, like almost everything these days, drones and a lot of other things uh, are just computers. Whether you know your camera's a computer, the car's a computer, everything's a computer. And computers run on software, obviously, and so that's why we always have firmware updates. And there have been some examples where those haven't gone as smoothly as people hoped. Uh, particularly, you know, if you're running a business and you've got a drone, you run a uh, firmware update before you go off on the next job. And, you know, sometimes you discover that that update wasn't producing the exact uh, kinds of improvements you were hoping for and uh, sometimes broke things. So it's that's been an interesting lesson. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that we mentioned last week, and uh, I thought I'd share this with you because it sort of follows it through, was I watched... Drones for animal rescues. I watched Doug Thorne flies around the world after national, and I can attest to say that it was a good show. And he talks about being a good pilot. And a lot of the things he talked about in the first episode about what involves being a drone pilot, as well as learning the ins and outs to navigate. I mean, a lot of it is having a plan. And executing it. it, so it's it was sort of dove, it dovetailed nicely with this article about someone who's really successful, how he or how they achieve that goal. And it's not just it's using the drone as a tool and working a business or plan around it, not um, not the drone being the business plan. Mm. Well, I'm glad you had a chance to look at that. I remember we when we talked about uh, this uh, gentleman last week about how he goes out and rescues animals, pets, other things after disasters. Uh, I, I fully intended to to check it out. And uh, for those of you who haven't yet, there's a link in the last episode show notes in 395 to that. And uh, I hope to check it out myself. And if you're an animal lover, it's hard to watch. Um, these animals, a lot of them are mis- malnutrition and such, but it, it really was... A lovely story, um, and uh, I highly recommend it. It was really kind of nice. So, the role of drones in connecting AI and human intelligence. This has kind of been a subtext for us over the years, that, you know, artificial intelligence becoming more and more active in drones, you know. And so this article was brought to you by analyticalinsight.net. And um, more and more drones use AI, and and it's becoming artificial intelligence is becoming acceptable. Skynet is on its way. <laughs> yes, we have these deep learning algorithms now, and uh, obviously they're they're trained with images, and then we have computer vision on on drones. We have the sensors on the drones, so I put those two together, and. Uh, the drone is now able to identify items, classify them, and take actions based on, uh, on on what it's found. And of course, this is useful in just a wide variety of applications, maybe almost all of them. Um, but um, the article says that the integration of drones with artificial intelligence will continue to accelerate. And uh, you know, I have I have no doubt of that. It sort of kind of is working its way through and you're getting more and more comfortable. Um, I'm sure that things that we thought it were 
exciting five years ago, as far as artificial intelligence goes, has become routine. Um, it just seems like the envelope keeps expanding outwards. Um, and compact AI algorithms are now viable for drones. Processing power available, storage cost dropping, and solutions available now on the market. So, I mean, it's AI is becoming reality. One of the things that the article points out is that companies have to realize a, a few things. One is that, and perhaps most importantly, is that the drones, mixing drones and artificial intelligence or AI, only makes logical sense if they save the customer money or time. And I think that's a it's a good point. Um, sometimes AI seems to be used as a as a marketing technique. And um, the author of this article is is pointing out that yeah, well, that's nice, but they need to they need to provide value. They need to save the customer, as he says, money or or time. Just to have AI for AI's sake, that's not going to cut it long term. Yeah, it's a very good point. Hypersonics and Kratos have launched hypersonic drones next year with 2023. This is the Dart AE drone. Looks like um, hypersonic is probably the bleeding edge technology in the aviation world right now. It really is. And if you're not familiar with it, it's really simple. In fact, that's, well, it, it's really simple. It's really concept. simple, everybody who's doing it. It's not simple to pull off. In fact, it's extremely difficult to pull off. It's very simple in, in concept because with a scramjet uh, or a ramjet, you don't have moving parts like you do in a jet engine. It uses the uh, sort of the natural compression of air coming in through the intake if it's traveling at high speed. Of course, that means you've got to get it up to high speed in order to operate. And that's what we're seeing here with this Dart drone, uh, which is interestingly enough 3D printed. Um, we're seeing more and more of that. So there's a a booster, a Kratos booster, accelerates the vehicle to over Mach 5, which is pretty pretty quick in and of itself. And then the hypersonics scramjet engine takes over. Now, they're saying that they're looking at possible speeds of Mach 5 to Mach 12, uh, which is just amazingly fast. Um, but they've tested, they say, this engine in a shock tunnel last year up to Mach 10. So sounds like it's more than just a paper idea. And the drone will fly autonomously. Uh, now, this is a little less than AI, but it, along a programmed flight path to a predetermined landing destination, it is going to be pre-programmed. I don't think it'll be it'll be artificial intelligence to decide which way to go. It, it's going to be pre-programmed, and it'll be a 500 kilometer demonstration flight. Um, so. Basically, that'll happen in about 30 seconds, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It'll go pretty quick. Um, I mean, there are a lot of questions here. Uh, you know, hypersonics, as we said, is, is a really tough thing to uh, pull off. For one thing, when you're traveling at speeds like that, you generate a lot of heat on the surface of the vehicle, for example. So you, you know, you're talking about exotic materials. Um, you're talking about different technologies to keep the the uh, the aircraft from melting on itself, uh, so I mean this is not you know an easy challenge. Uh, one thing they um, 
they mention is that the uh, the hydrogen used for this because it's a it's a hydrogen scramjet engine, but they're calling it green hydrogen because the the hydrogen that they're going to uh, generate for this drone is to be extracted from water using solar power, and that's that's one of the aspects of hydrogen power for fuel cells is the context we've mostly talked about it in, is that the methods for manufacturing hydrogen right now tend to be energy intensive and use fossil fuels. So that kind of, you know, negates the... The whole energy. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, here, interestingly enough, they're going to use solar power and extract the hydrogen for wa- from water. So that's the plan. But this is something that's... Uh, so advanced in concept and also in implications if it works that we're going to want to follow this one pretty closely and and uh, and hope that it's successful oh and just because i was curious um mach 10 is 7673 miles an hour <laughs> there you go so so an hour uh, less than an hour to fly across the united states yeah so you're right about a few seconds for, well, not many seconds for that 500-kilometer demonstration flight. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting because it'll, you know, it. you still have to get it up to speed. So there yeah, are, yeah. there's some time there. So True. So this is from DroneDJ.com. Apple drones are now reality in orchards cultivating fruit. Yes, this is not about the item we know and love but the actual fruit, um, an Israeli startup Tevel Aeronautics Technologies is trying to help apple farmers because, you know, an apple a day helps keep the drone away. I happen to know a lot about the um, difficulties of uh, operating an apple orchard because um, uh, married into a, a family of apple growers. Picking apples is extremely hard work, and it's very difficult to find workers and when you do find them, um, it, it costs a lot. Um, but it's it is extremely difficult. In fact, the the one orchard that I'm particularly familiar with had such difficulty finding workers to pick the apples in the fall that they um, actually imported workers from another country. It was actually economically uh, um, sensible to do that. So it's tough. So Tavel Aerobotics Technologies has developed uh, their flying autonomous robots platform for flying autonomous robots, uh, which is a tethered drone system. A ground vehicle slowly drives between the rows of the fruit trees. Several quadcopters are tethered to the vehicle. So you've got basically... I guess kind of like a spider crawling along the thing with the little arm, the, with the quadcopters being the arms and the roving part being the um, body of the spider. And the quadcopters have arms and articulated grippers. So basically their job is to go up and prune the trees. These, these drones, these quadcopters, uh, pick the apples and they place them on QR-coded spots. And uh, so then the apples are fed from those uh, into crates. But, and here we go back to the AI part, um, they're using artificial intelligence to identify the ripe fruit uh, versus the ones that need to stay on the tree longer, which is, 
what's um, described in the article, but that's different. That's a bit of a different experience than uh, than mine with apple orchards, which are for anyone tree. They the apples pretty much are all ripe at the same time. But nevertheless, it's a, it's an interesting concept. You can. Uh, teach the AI to identify a ripe apple, a ready-to-be-picked apple versus one one that's not. And I, I was talking to Amber, and I thought maybe the first one should be named Adam. Yeah. Of course. The second one be named Eve. Eve. All right. All right. So our next story comes from GPS World. Beagle Systems launches its first station in-country-wide drone network. In Germany, Beagle Systems uh, GmbH is building a nationwide network of landing and charging stations for drones. Beagle Systems, they see themselves as a drone as a service provider. So in other words, they could serve a number, any number of different markets, delivery markets, courier service, express services, uh, medical deliveries, any you know, any, basically anything, and they want to set up a a network where they can provide that service, kind of on demand, I guess. Now they specialize in long range UAS flights, and as as David mentioned, they want to set up this network of of these stations where the drones can uh, um, can land, can wait for the next job, I guess, uh, can charge up, and go off on missions. And they have BV loss permits. Flights are controlled from the Hamburg company headquarters. Personnel on site are not necessary. So when they say personnel on site, meaning that these remote landing pads and charging pads um, will not have personnel. And it saves time and cost because you're, you're building a, a simpler infrastructure. The Beagle M drone was developed in-house. It has a wingspan of 2.5 meters and a 3-kilogram payload. So the company has one base station now, so it's got a long way to go to meet its goals. But they do expect to build a nationwide network, again, that's in Germany, of charging stations within the next few years. So I think there's obviously a you know walk-before-you-run kind of strategy here where you know establish one or a couple of stations, test, you know, prove them out and, uh, you know, expand the business from there. But uh, this is a, a, a quite a ambitious idea, but if successful, uh, this would put them likely way ahead of competition. And it would set up a model for the rest of the world to follow through. So it, it's definitely interesting and unique. And we'll have a picture of the Beagle M and it looks like it's sort of fixed-wing drone with um, vertical takeoff rotors. So it's it, one of those hybrids that we've come across. So the next story, how did big data captured by drones help create a digital twin of the Shedzinzi? Uh, you picked the story. Uh, I did. Um, forgive my um, my Hungarian. Um, the Chesney Chain Bridge in Hungary, and it opened in 1649 and is a historic landmark. But they used some inter- drones to do some interesting surveying. Yeah, they did. It, it, as uh, work began to upgrade the bridge in 2021, and this is a big bridge. This is, I mean, 1849 is a long time ago, but this is a huge uh, suspension bridge. 
In fact, it's 380 meters long. But as I said, they started to do some upgrade work in 2021 uh, and decided that, you know, what they really ought to do is is capture what they call a digital twin of the bridge. So basically scan the bridge and create a highly detailed uh, electronic model of the bridge. And so that's what they've done. And the team worked to scan and made the bridge using ground surveys, aerial scans, and boats. Ventus Tech provide professional area and sonar surveys. Heritage protection and archaeology are now applications that they provide. However, they're using UAVs for aerial photography. They can reveal details that would be missed by traditional ground-based photography, and they use LIDAR and infrared imagery. So it's it's kind of a complete package as you're do the more information, the better your model. So you got all different layers via different scans coming from the drones. So they they use DJI M600 Pro drones. And uh, there's a quote, they said the, the flights had to be conducted from a small takeoff and landing area and the pilot needed special help extending uh, extended visual line of sight when flying from one side of the bridge to the other and circling around the piers and columns of the bridge. And then this is interesting. They said we had to monitor the protection zones from the important buildings in some part of the flight plan was flown manually while the other with waypoint navigation mode. And some of these sensitive buildings that they had to uh, watch out for included a number of government offices that were close to this bridge, including the president's office and the prime minister's office. So you you really want to make sure if you're buzzing around in your drones, uh, capturing the, you know, the data from this bridge that you're not uh, flying somewhere you shouldn't. Yeah. And we'll have a video of um, the development of the digital twin model of the uh, chain bridge on our website on this show notes. So some of the detail is just amazing though, David, if you, you know, you watch the video and, and it just, it's amazing. It, they show you the, I don't know, the, the, the lights that are on the bridge mounted onto the side of the bridge and, and the detail is just really phenomenal. You know what? It was also a very attractive bridge. It is. I think that was part. I think that was part of what what I found interesting was it's. It, it definitely was a bridge worth preserving because it was. It's a very interesting and attractive bridge. And so this is um, in Hungary. I don't know if we said or not, but it it crosses the Danube River, and uh, it links the downtown area of Buda and Pest, which are the two parts of Budapest. I didn't know that Budapest came from Buda, and this other place called. Pest. I didn't either, but see, but see, this is why people come to this show, Matt. You never know what you're going to learn. You, we've learned so much about stuff that we never would have associated with drones. But well, there you go, folks. Budapest is actually Buddha and Pest, and the beautiful, beautiful blue Danube splits the two. So I, I just got something uh, I wanted to toss in real quick, David, that I uh, noticed just a few hours ago or, or received an email from from the FAA on. This is FAA reaches 1 million airspace authorizations for drone pilots. And so the FAA has issued its millionth airspace authorization. And of course, this is through the, the LANCE program, 
which uh, allows for drone pilots to, in an automated fashion, get authorization and also provide ATC with uh, awareness of where drones may be operating. So that's a big milestone, David, a, a million Lance authorizations. And when what, Lance has been up two or three years? Mm. So, I mean, it definitely, it, it sounds like it's got ex- exponential growth. But, yeah, that's a major milestone. Million, a million, f- think about it, a million flights have occurred using that system. Yeah. Well, we got some feedbacks, um, Max. Um, we've got, hi, guys. So I caught this article, and given the associated image, my first thought was, are these guys from Connecticut? Now, this is from our our friend down under, Grant McCarran. And um, this was, Smart Shooters launches Smash Dragon UAV. Of course, the next th- thought was, one step closer to Skynet. Well, we've always talked about that. So let's talk about the Smart Shooter Dragon UAV, Max. So sh- Smart Shooter is a company they design, develop, manufacture automatic targeting and firing systems for small arms. So these are kind of bizarrely high-tech units that are typically mounted on small arms, high-powered rifles or something like that. And what this does is it, it does some image processing that actually recognizes targets, predicts the movement of targets. It locks onto targets. Uh, you can move, the target move, it stays locked, locked onto the targets. And kind of their tagline is then with all that, pull the trigger, the thing is called smash. Pull the trigger and smash will do the rest, making sure you hit the target. Pretty high tech. So uh, now what we see here is that with this uh, smash dragon is that they've mounted this capability on a drone. So the, you, can, you can fly the drone near a target, and uh, presumably it then accomplishes all these kinds of things that it would on a, on a rifle carried by a person. Uh, yeah, well, okay, that's kind of creepy. But <laughs> is thanks, Grant, for, thanks, Grant, for sending that. And, and, of course, we always want to hear from you, our listeners, and you can do that by sending us an email to feedback at theuavdigest.com. So, Max, I guess we should wrap it up. What do you think? All right. I'll just mention real quick, though, that we have a video in the show notes of this Smash Dragon, uh, so you can get a better idea of it. And, uh, of course, Grant's reference to uh, thinking this might be from Connecticut, that's a reference to the the teenager from Connecticut who was, uh, you know, mounting some firearms and even a flamethrower on a drone and got some notoriety from that. Haven't heard about this kid in, in quite a while, so don't know what happened to him. But He's probably an adult now. Yeah, doing who knows he, what. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. I don't even want... All right, so... Yeah. And, and, folks, the other part of that joke is my co-host is from Connecticut. Connecticut, yes, so. yes, yes. Yeah, the, the guy, the, the individual was from, like, the next town over from me, I believe. So thanks for listening. We really appreciate uh, appreciate you listening to the UAV Digest. Of course, we're at the UAVdigest.com. We look forward to doing this uh, every week. And you can find us in the social media, lots of places, David. Yeah, anywhere you can um, spell flight or Vanderhoof um, on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. And, of course, we have our own Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash 
UAV Digest, um, Twitter at UAV Digest. And of course, you can join our Slack listener team, and you do that by sending us an email to feedback at the UAVdigest.com. And we'll let you join the fun that goes on all week long talking about drones and aviation and a nice community where you can geek out and uh, with no judgment. So with that, I'm going to say thank you for listening. This is David. And this is Max. See you next week.